This VCU podcast on COVID-19 was recorded on March 25, 2020. The spread of COVID-19, also referred to as the novel coronavirus, is a rapidly evolving situation, having impacts on our daily lives, loved ones, and our hospitals. It's been over a decade since the world experienced its last health pandemic, but VCU Health has the expertise and experience in handling new disease threats. They're closely monitoring the outbreak and proactively taking action to keep their patients, team members, and community safe. Now, the World Health Organization, or WHO, has repeatedly underlined the importance of flattening the curve in order to tackle the coronavirus pandemic, calling on countries around the world to impose sweeping public health measures. Now, you're hearing that term a lot, but what does it mean? Dr. Gonzalo Behrman, epidemiologist and director of VCU Health's Infection Prevention Program, is here to talk with us about exactly that, why flattening the curve is so critical, and what each one of us can do right now to help. This is Healthy with VCU Health. I'm Bill Klaproth. Dr. Behrman, let me ask you this first. What do you do in your role as an epidemiologist? So my role as an epidemiologist at VCU Health is to oversee the hospital infection prevention program. And the underlying principle is that this program strives to assure that all patients and visitors and healthcare workers at VCU Health are safe uh, during the course of their visit or stay or work and to limit the introduction and transmission of infections to the healthcare system. So bring us up to speed. At this point, what do we know about COVID-19? So COVID-19 is a new virus that we have yet to uh, experience. So what's important about that is that we have no immunity uh, across the world with this virus. We also do not have any effective vaccine, so that limits our ability to really fight the virus. And we also don't have any proven or FDA-approved medications to treat the virus at this time. So that makes it all very challenging. On top of that, we're learning that the virus can cause severe disease in the minority of people, but in that minority of people, specifically patients or individuals are greater than 60 or 65 years of age and have underlying chronic conditions, that that disease can be potentially life-threatening to them. So we've all been asked to help flatten the curve. Can you explain what that means? So flattening the curve really refers to a concept known as the epidemic curve. And what it is, is a, a graphic representation of the number of cases over time. Now, you can imagine if there are a lot of cases occurring in a short period of time, the curve is very high and steep. Flattening the curve is a measure in which the number of cases is less, so it's not as steep, and it's spread out over time and not all at once as a bolus. The reason that's important is that would uh, allow for decreased stress on healthcare systems and response mechanisms to deal with the, the threat of that infectious disease. So it's really a way to both decrease the number of infections and to space them out in time so that they not appear all at once. So from your standpoint as an epidemiologist, why is this important? So this is really important for the following reason. And I think to answer this properly, I I probably should go over the four major things that we can do to prevent or to minimize infection or pandemics or outbreaks. First is rapid diagnosis. And that's, as you know, is a huge challenge right now since there's a shortage nationwide of diagnostic kits for COVID-19. Number two would be vaccination. 
which would certainly limit the transmission of an infection such as COVID-19. However, the reality is that a vaccine will not be available for likely 12 months, at least produced to scale. Uh, number three would be treatment, and this is something that we don't have right now that's effective and produced en masse. So we are not able to use treatment either to prevent disease, such as prophylaxis, or to minimize the impact of disease, such as with treatment uh, of any infectious disease. And then the last thing uh, for us to, in our armamentarium, which would be number four, are something known as non-pharmacologic interventions. And these interventions are what you hear about day in and day out, such as social distancing, isolation, quarantine, hand hygiene, closing schools, respiratory and cough etiquette. This is our primary pillar that we have right now to minimize the impact of COVID-19 and to flatten the curve. The reason we want to flatten the curve, once again, is that it allows healthcare systems, health departments, the public to better prepare and respond to the cases that do arise. There'll be fewer cases coming in less frequently at a, at, a, at a slower rate, such that there's not a massive surge of patients going into the healthcare system requiring care. And lastly, hospitals like VCU Health are prepared to, to help patients and to deal with all patient concerns, but we do need uh, the public to do its part. And the, the part of the public is really to stay aware, stay aware of the situation, stay up to date on information by visiting the health department websites in Virginia, for example, the CDC website, and really abiding to the recommendations by health authorities with social distancing, isolation, hand hygiene, canceling, cancellation of mass gatherings. Those kind of things are critically important. Staying home when you're sick, uh, provided that you're not sick enough to require hospitalizations, stay home so as not to infect others. So if I have this right, there's four steps to preventing a pandemic. One is rapid diagnosis, two is vaccination, three is treatment, and four is non-pharmacologic interventions, which really falls on the public. You're talking about social distancing, shutting down businesses, shutting down bars, shutting down schools. So what can one person do right now to help flatten the curve? The, more, the most important thing, uh, I think, for an individual or citizen to do is to really stay aware of the situation, get your updates from credible sources, health department websites, um, certainly the CDC is a good place to look for information also. Uh, really, really abide to the recommendations for the non-pharmacologic interventions, which are the things such as washing your hands frequently, staying away from work from others if you are sick, socially isolating, um, practicing respiratory and cough etiquette, washing your hands after coughing, coughing or sneezing into a tissue and promptly throwing that tissue away. Uh, wiping down surfaces in the household, particularly in the kitchen or in common areas. Those will all help minimize the risk within your home for the spread of COVID-19. And for people that are unhappy with this or just don't understand it, there is evidence that this really works. Is that right? Uh, absolutely. In, in healthcare systems where they've been very, very aggressive with diagnosis, uh, contact isolation or tracing and isolating people and using uh, non-pharmacologic interventions, the curve has significantly flattened, and the best examples would be uh, South Korea, Hong Kong, and also Singapore. They've been very aggressive with that. And it's good to see their measures working. So for someone listening to this podcast right now who needs a little bit of hope, and we all need some hope, we're all feeling anxious about this, we're all a bit scared about this, is there anything that you are seeing that makes you hopeful? 
Well, I think that the reports that I'm seeing from other countries such as South Korea, Singapore, also Hong Kong are also very are encouraging that non-pharmacologic interventions are effective. I also am optimistic that we will eventually have better treatments or treatments that are approved and also a vaccine available within 12 months. But I also think it's important to stress that situations such as pandemics really require a collaborative effort. It's really a collaborative sacrifice. And if we all are in this together to try to do the right things, not only for ourselves, but for our loved ones through the non-pharmacologic interventions, we can significantly impact the rate of propagation of this virus in our country. And I'm confident we're going to do that. So thank you for that ray of hope, if you will. And then the ray of hope leads to, okay, this is going to be over sometime, hopefully sooner than later, no matter what that is. Nobody really knows months from now, potentially. So let me ask you this. We're just not going to say, okay, everybody go outside. Everything's great now. Businesses are open. Have fun. There's going to have to be some kind of measures in place. How do we do this? Otherwise, we're just going to reignite this thing again. We're going to have these big pop-up waves of coronavirus. How do we reassimilate? back into our regular lives and communities. Right. I think it'll be a stepwise approach to kind of reassimilating ourselves to our prior norm. But to do that, we also have to have other provisos in place. And I think we would have to have a system of surveillance and an assurance that we have the appropriate testing available so that if there is a concerns about resurgence of this, uh, of this disease, COVID-19, that we're able to quickly and promptly identify it and do the appropriate isolations. Uh, in addition, if we have a vaccine available sooner than later, that would certainly be hugely encouraging uh, about uh, for allowing us to go back to kind of business per usual. So when you say surveillance, are you talking about on an individual basis? Because right now we're shutting down whole communities, whole states even. What does surveillance mean to us? Help us understand that. So what I'm saying is at present in the United States, we have more people sick than we're reporting because we're unable to test them. The testing availability is just not there. So if we go back or when we go back to business as usual, then as a proviso, we should have ability to test people should they manifest symptoms so we know that those symptoms are COVID-19 and not something else. And if they are COVID-19, we'll have a much better understanding of the amount of disease out there, which would be the prevalence, and we would have a better mechanism to say, okay, you're infected, you need to stay home, socially isolated, et cetera, et cetera. Those measures must be in place before we go back to business as usual. So that type of testing and surveillance, that sounds like it could take a long time before we're ready to implement that on a wide scale in this country. It could. We're, uh, unfortunately, the U.S. is far behind other developed countries in testing capability at this time. Okay, so we've got our work cut out for us. So I'm going to put you on the spot right now and ask you to pull out your trusty crystal ball. And I know there are no answers to this. Nobody really knows for sure. But what is your best educated guess on when we might get back to some form of normalcy? So I would say, uh, to begin with, that the crystal ball is fuzzy. However, <laughs> my, president, my, my prediction is that within three months, we might start to normalize things. That's my prediction. Well, all right. I think a lot of us know that we're going to be dealing with this for a long time, but if we can get a sense of normalcy within three months, 
That's a lot better than a year, I got to tell you. A year will be tough. Now, in three months, we won't have a vaccine, but hopefully the most critical component, which will be the availability of testing, will be there in three months. And we will have a ramp up in the appropriate personal protective equipment so healthcare workers, uh, people working in healthcare, feel that they can provide care in a very safe fashion. And in three months, might we have a better protocol on how to treat this? We won't have all the answers, but maybe we'll learn when we see a COVID-19 patient, this is what we have to do first. This is what we have to do second. Might we have those types of answers within three months? Yes, I, almost certainly within three months, we'll have a better understanding of which of the medications, either new medications or repurposed medications, can be used preferentially for severe cases of COVID-19. And that, too, would give us a ray of hope as we look to the future. This has really been informative and interesting. Dr. Behrman, thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely, sir. Pleasure. That's Dr. Gonzalo Behrman, and VCU Health is prepared and up-to-date with the latest information and care for COVID-19. And for more information on COVID-19, please visit vcuhealth.org COVID-19. That's vcuhealth.org slash COVID-19. And if you found this podcast helpful, please share it on your social channels and explore the full podcast library at vcuhealth.org slash podcast for more health topics of interest to you. This is Healthy with VCU Health. I'm Bill Klaproth. Thanks for listening.